the main ingredient So, Andrew, thank you so much for being on The Main Ingredient with David Nafeld. Um, I appreciate you coming on, and I also appreciate um, your willingness to be very open about the topics that we have ahead. But first, I want to show appreciation to you for something else, which is for being a true advocate for our industry. I think that it goes without saying that you're highly successful in a number of different spaces that don't have anything to do with restaurants. And the fact that you spend such a tremendous amount of your time working on behalf of all of our restaurants. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really something special. And so thank you on behalf of myself and all the other restaurants out there that get the benefit of kind of drafting off your coattails when you're out there kind of, you know, preaching our message. Well, it's number one, I don't feel I have a choice. Uh, number two, um, I wouldn't have it any other way if I was given a choice. And it, it, it is, it, it, there's a selfish, uh, component to that, uh, as well. Um, as well as a, 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 a paying back of a debt that no matter what I do for food people anywhere, it's never enough. Um, I've been, in, I, I've, I mean, I've been in, I, I've, I've collected money in exchange for cooking services rendered every year of my life since I was 14 um, in one form or another because uh, I cooked in restaurants uh, during high school in the summertime. And my family knew that I was going to be in the food business when I was three, four, five years old. I just loved it too much. I was, I obsessed about it. Um, I was one of those kids that, you know, when I went with my dad to Europe for the first time, when I was like eight years old, um, there was, you know, I wasn't interested in them making something for the child. You know, I wanted the tasting menu. So the, the die was cast a long time ago. Um, and I love to cook and I love to cook for people and I've, done it my whole life. Um, but when I, uh, you know, I was in the restaurant business in New York and crashed and burned and, you know, horrific, uh, drug and alcohol bottom, uh, got sober 29 years ago, uh, started working again, uh, washing dishes in a restaurant here while I was in a, uh, living in a halfway house and through a whole crazy bunch of circumstances wound up becoming a chef and partner in the, in the restaurant within a couple months, uh, once I gotten out of the halfway house. But what I didn't know was that the food community, until I looked in the rear view mirror at about five, six, seven, eight years of sobriety, I didn't know how, how much the food community in Minnesota. And then as the years went by and I started getting back into, uh, different position in my life. And then things kind of exploded and I got a whole bunch of different big platforms, how much food people around the country, the world, just food people gave me my life back. Um, the restaurant community here in the, in the twin cities gave me my life back and, you know, loved me before I, I had learned to love myself again. And so there's a debt of gratitude that, I mean, I could work a thousand days in a row trying to help someone 
and and never come near what I feel would be a fair and equitable trade-off for what I've been given. I'm able to be a dad because of food people. I'm able to uh, show up and and be a, a, a citizen in my community and don't have to shrink away because I've got some horrible secret thanks to food people and restaurant people. So when the time came, uh, when COVID hit, um, it was actually kind of a, a funny thing because five years previous in Miami, uh, uh, Jose Andres and Tom Colicchio and a whole bunch of us were standing around wondering uh, why we should um, uh, – we were trying to get out of doing galas because we were we – were, we were putting a hundred thousand dollars at a time into a bucket, uh, trying to solve hunger issues that were, that had a hole in it. That was $105,000, uh, in, in diameter, you know, so the, the money would go in and it would go out. We didn't think we were making a difference and we needed to do it through, you know, by working on Capitol Hill and changing laws. And so when this thing hit, it was instantaneous. There were a whole bunch of us who'd been talking about this for years and not as active as we could be. But then with restaurants closed in March, you know, we closed here in Minnesota, I think it was March 7th or 8th. It's like, hell yeah, we're just going to devote ourselves to trying to change laws. And uh, that's really the only, and we're still trying to change laws, right? Uh, you and I, uh, and the rest of our, our teammates on the IRC. So um, you're very kind to say so, but I just don't, it comes very naturally. There, there was no question. It's like watching a car go into the water. You just dive in after it. I mean, it just, there was no, there's no way I would, I, I'm going to leave, you know, blood and skin in this game to do everything that I can to, you know, make sure as much of the food industry stays whole as we can. Cause every day we lose more and more uh, people in restaurants and suppliers and farmers and winemakers and on and on. Uh, and then we're going to be tasked with rebuilding, remaking, making over, recreating. And I have so much faith because the smartest, most brilliant, hardest working, kindest, most gracious people in the world are food people. I mean, our industry is getting fucking kneecapped. You know, people are going out of business right and left. I have friends in this town who have closed their restaurants and call me a week later and say, hey, what can I bring to that event? What can I do for our community? I mean, it's just, it's, it is, if I think too much about it, I start crying. There's no other business where people do that. I mean, uh, we have yeah, people I, on our totally, IRC totally calls agree. on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays and all the rest of that who, who are showing up every day to help others after they've had to close their own business. I mean, that just, I mean, you talk about, you know, noble souls. You talk about the kind of person I want to be when I grow up. I want to be that kind of person. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with that sentiment. Um, I don't think there is another industry in the world that acts the way our industry does. You know, I've been saying this for months now that, you know, there are first responders um, and then we are second responders, right? Like when I stole, I stole that from you on MSNBC today <laughs> at 4am. Well, and you were incredible on there and you and said it, no, but you said it in our meeting the other day and, uh, I've used it four or five times in conversation since I'd never heard it expressed that way before. And I've been saying the same thing for five or six years, just not as 
succinctly, you know, that we, you know, once the first responders go in, the next people that show up are chefs. I mean, I went down uh, to New Orleans after Katrina. Um, I uh, couldn't get into New York after uh, I was here in Minnesota after the Twin Towers fell. Um, wanted to because my mom was missing. We found her like four or five days later uh, and she was fine. Um, but, uh, you know, everywhere you go, every natural disaster, the first thing that first people to show up are, are chefs. I mean, we've had our disasters here in the Twin Cities. First people to show up are chefs uh, and food people and cooks and, you know, anyone who touches food because we we go in there and we we try to help people. But I love that whole second responder thing. It's fantastic. Well, and, you know, the thing is, you know, I, I ask people all the time in other industries, I'm like, you know, do you guys ever get asked to do um, fundraisers for just, I don't know, for a school or for, um, I don't know, like a charity or a church or anything like that. And everyone is just like, it's an overwhelming. No, there is no, there is no plumbers, you know, charity for, you know, uh, well, it's, <laughs> I know what you mean, but this is very funny. Cause I live, I live in a, you know, a Midwestern state that's real uh, old fashioned in many respects. And I always tell people it's like the it's like the high school uh, uh, spring uh, Shakespeare Festival where there's there's a there's a their version of the playbill. Right. And before they sell any of the ads for fifty dollars each, which does include local the, the plumber and the electrician, all the rest of that, and the local insurance company and the local bike store and whatever <laughs> whatever's around the school, you know, they they hit them up for fifty bucks for a quarter page ad, and they're able to to finance the 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 spring uh, performance of Macbeth. But before any of that happens, they get food people to volunteer to bring in food to sell in the in the auditorium before the show, after the show, and during intermission. Before any, I mean, you know, any gala, any any fundraiser is planned, the first people that are brought on board are food people. Right. Um, and we've said yes for, you know, as long as I've been involved in this industry. And I mean, and, it's, and oftentimes it's, it's at your own at your own expense, right? Like, you know, when I say expense, I don't even mean financial. It's, you know, when are these things held? They're normally held on your one day off a week. They're yep. normally held, um, you know, you're taking time away from the very limited time that you might be with your family. You're taking away to do these things. You're uh, away from a business that's already stressed either because a lack of resources or labor or cash. And you're doing them because it is instilled within our culture, our, our industry's culture, that you know what you do when you get to a certain point is you help. You just jump in and help, right? And yep. and it's it's strange that you know we're at a place right now in time where our industry is now crying out for help. It is it is in a bad way, and you have certain folks in government that just can't seem to understand why it is that we need a helping hand right now. And, and there's almost like these mocking statements out there. Like there was one politician that came out publicly and said something about celebrity, giving celebrity chefs a, a, a check, um, you know, for their restaurants. And, and I feel like that is such a, first of all, it's such a skewed, cynical way of viewing an industry that is made up of the majority of, 
you know, of people that I know that own restaurants are uh, newly naturalized citizens, uh, people who were formerly incarcerated, and this was their this is their way of getting a job in an industry at an entry level job, and then working their way up to actually owning something. Uh, you know, just like this incredibly diverse group of folks, and the I don't know two dozen celebrity chefs that I know, like the majority of them actually don't really need to be making money from restaurants anymore because if they're a celebrity chef, they're probably making money being a celebrity, you know? Yeah, they don't make it off the restaurants. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the people I know in this business that actually make a lot of money are the folks who are able to create very strong, very uh, well-organized restaurant groups, right? Not all of us can be Nobu Matsuhisa, right? And Who's a genius, by the way. A genius. I mean, but I mean, to replicate 24 restaurants and four hotels, you know, globally at that level of precision and do the thing that, you know, he does so well. Um, I always hold him up as sort of like, you know, he's he's my icon for, you know, when people right. talk about how to replicate a dish in a second restaurant. Well, we have to do that. Our famous shrimp dish and they just can't manage to do it. And I'm like, Nobu, you need to go to the school of Nobu Matsuhisa where right. he has people who just, you know, can replicate I mean, incredible systems uh, developed by him and his partners. Yeah. So um, about a quick story on that, about 16 years ago, 17 years ago, uh, I got to work at the original Nobu in Tribeca. Uh-huh. And that was like, there was only one Nobu at the time. There was Nobu in Tribeca and there was Matsuhisa in LA, but there were no other Nobus. And it was still like around the time that like, you know, Robert De Niro would come in and he'd like pop his head, you know, into the past in the kitchen and just like say, say hi to all the guys. And it was just like this incredible restaurant. And I have to tell you, the one thing that I feel like Nobu just does not get nearly enough credit for is the fact that he was a trendsetter. He really took that Peruvian, um, Japanese cuisine, um, you know, with, with bringing those flavors from Central and South America and, and adding them to the kind of like refinement of Japanese cuisine with like just the mm -hmm. utter pristine quality of product. And that was something that was very, very um, new. And, and his, yeah, his his Nikkei food is is insane. I always point out to people, you know, it's like I, I can name five or six dishes cooked at trendy restaurants all around the country, all around the world. In fact, that like he invented. Right. You know, so it's like when when you're the person who's actually putting together stuff and other people are you know, ripping you off out of art culinaire and old magazines and, you know, all, you know, your first cookbook and stuff like that, you know, you're doing something right. He's a, he is a genius. People ask me all the time, what's the best thing you ever ate? And right up there in the top five, cause it's hard to distinguish. But when we went to Japan, uh, I, we, he did, Nobu cooked five or six courses for me in the kitchen in his restaurant in Tokyo um, and then like three nights later he invited the whole crew to dinner uh, and made this like 20 course and in just insane 
kind of thing for us. That sounds but incredible. then two nights later, he then went away. He went down to Taiwan, I think, then flew back in. And I got a, a message at my hotel because uh, I was staying on for a couple of days just to, you know, because I'm all the way in Japan. I'm not just going to go home when the shoot's over. Uh, I love that country and its people. And the food is obviously uh, very, very special. Uh, and I got a text saying, do you want to have dinner? And I'm like, yeah, where, where do you want to go? He goes, no, I want you to come over to my house. And I'm like, sure. Okay. <laughs> that sounds incredible. And, and I went over, to, I went over to his house and, you know, he was, you know, we ate, there were four or five dishes, you know, which, which for a Japanese meal, uh, you know, with six people, uh, dining, uh, but it was his family and friend or two. Uh, I was, I, I literally sat there and you, you just, I had no cell phone in my pocket with a camera in it, you know? Um, this is like 12, 13 years ago, something like that. Right. Uh, my my Palm Pilot or whatever it was back <laughs> then didn't, you know, my Blackberry didn't take pictures then. Uh, and I just, I remember every single aspect of that meal. I've never had anything like it in my, in, in my life. It was just, he's so talented and I'm so, I'm so grateful uh, that he's my friend. And when I speak to people like you who've gotten to work in some of his restaurants, I'm, I'm always jealous. I tell him all the time. I said, you know, I, I'll just come here the next time I'm in LA or whatever. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna come and can I just cook for a night and just hang out? You know, I just want to stage. I want to be the 59 year old stagiaire in, in one of his restaurants because the, the stuff that they do is so beautiful and so fantastic. Um, his dried miso, the things that he does with certain ingredients, what he does with dried miso is fantastic. He, he does that that palm, heart of palm salad where they pull away every thread from the heart of palm uh, and mix it in a very tart lemony vinaigrette. Uh, it's finished with yuzu and it's set on a puddle of a, another miso sauce, miso and mustard sauces. Just might be my my favorite thing in the whole world. I just, I, I adore him and his food. Yeah. Well, world listen, class. I mean, but the, 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 the point that we were making about replicators was that if you're really good, you can, you can develop something that's replicatable, uh, and then you can make a lot of money from it. And, uh, but most, and, and, and this is what I find, I, you know, cause I see people on my Twitter feed every day talking about why are we going to bail out a bunch of rich, uh, celebrity chefs, you know, there were 600, at least last March, 600 and some odd thousand independent restaurants of which a, you know, a tenth of a percent or whatever are owned by people that you can name or recognize. I mean, it's just not, it, it's, it, it's just in the independent restaurant world. Yes. Those thousand restaurants out of 600,000 get all the, the, the press and pub at a national level. Um, but the independent restaurant is the, is, is the neighborhood cafe. It's the local diner. It's the pizza parlor. It's the sub shop. It's the, it's the, the little bistro in your town, you know, where, whether you call it that or not, that you, you go for your birthday or you ask your girlfriend to get married. Um, it is, it is the backbone of main street, um, collects trust taxes for our municipalities. I mean, it's so vital to our culture. Uh, it's vital to the tourism trade. It's, it's nothing could be more vital. I mean, you, you can't name, 
you know, uh, you know, aside from the big two or three crab companies that have restaurants named after them, right? Uh, their restaurants, they're just all these nameless little crab shacks all around the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay or the lobster uh, and clam shacks on, on your drive from Boston up through uh you know, with a little bit of coast of New Hampshire and into Maine and then all the way up the coast of Maine. You know, you can maybe name a couple of them if you go there often, but it's all those special places that are the 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 bread and butter of our industry. It's it's not rich restaurateurs. It's not uh, celebrities or celebrity chefs, despite there being uh, a lot of those that get a lot of ink. It's the, these are, you know, and I, and I dislike the term mom and pop, but they're family run or partner run restaurants where their people have just poured their heart and soul and trying to make a living feeding people. Cause we love what happens when we see people eating in our restaurants. We just love seeing that. Yeah. I think that, you know, people want to have a cynical view of things, and and I think they 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 know what they're doing when they say that because the truth is it's like when you drive through the streets of any town I mean I'm sorry like what you're seeing there is you're seeing everyday people and we are I think also struggling with this identity that if you own a business or you own a restaurant that somehow puts you in a place where you are like above the working class. And I would say in our industry, it's quite the opposite. You are so working class. You are sometimes working as the plumber. Sometimes you're the dishwasher. You Sometimes you're waiting tables and you're cooking and, and you're showering after work, right? Like you're getting burns on your hands and your, and your arms. And a lot of times, which I know sounds really shitty and like a really bad business plan, but a lot of times these people are making just enough to essentially live a life that they have a job, right? They've built themselves a job. And when we try and somehow like separate that from the labor pool, I think it's a very skewed perspective because they are a part of the labor, <laughs> a part of the world of labor, right? They're working a job. They're not just, they're not pushing paper around in an office, right? Like a lot of these people are active owners. And I would say probably the majority of them are, are right? Like how many Chinese restaurants, Mexican restaurants, um, you know, I mean, Japanese restaurants do you go to where the owner is working a position that night, right? You know, diners, um, barbecue joints, right? Like the, the owner of the restaurant is behind the smoker, you know, and, and they're doing an actual job, right? The, the percentage of restaurateurs out there that have the ability to just uh, manage, um, you know, a satellite business, uh, that's a very, very small percentage of the people in our industry. So when we're out there, and I, and I want to kind of like cap this part of the conversation and move on to the other stuff that I really want to talk to you about. But I think that, you know, I think it's just important to remember, you know, the people that are out there doing the work, doing the jobs, you know, they're the people you just don't hear from, right? Because they have no outlet. And when you are hearing chefs on Twitter, Instagram, uh, TV, all those things, you're seeing people who have the privilege to go out and speak on behalf of an industry, the majority of which has been marginalized for their entire lives. So that being said, I do want to kind of 
change pace slightly because one of the main reasons I've wanted to talk to you for a long time is because you've been very open and I would say generous with, um, you know, your history and, and how it is that you kind of, I would say stumbled into, you know, a very, very blessed life, but by way of some really, really treacherous waters, right? Yes. And I guess my question around that is kind of, where did you see that start to bubble up? And, you know, can you walk us through the process of kind of it being, I guess, what we would call like a benign, you know, casual thing to the point where you were like, this is, I've gone too far. I've, I've, I guess you would say I've hit rock bottom. <laughs> uh, I was about to ask you, are you talking about the, 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 the dumb, stupid luck of a career that I fell into uh, on television or the treacherous waters. And yeah, the treacherous waters are much more interesting. Um, you know, I, I am a, what is referred to in uh, 12 step rooms as a real alcoholic. Um, and I, I have been one since my earliest memory, since before I picked up a drink or a drug. Once I knew what alcoholism and addiction was, I realized that I was, you know, self-centeredness run riot, that I was king baby, that I was a resentment machine, that I was a user of people and a taker of things way before I picked up uh, the first drink uh, or the first drug. Um, when I had the opportunity to get sober in my current sobriety, uh, which, uh, in six weeks, I'll be 29 years sober. Congratulations. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it took four or five years of inventory and work on myself to really look back at my own story, my own past and say, wow, I, I really was a mess before I started using my, my solution to the pain I was feeling inside that I wasn't good enough that, you know, guys like you must have had the rules, you know, of how the day was going to go on planet earth slid under your door every night when you went to bed and you wake up in the morning, you go, Oh, okay. That's how I navigate that. Um, I always felt everyone had a cuter girlfriend. Everyone got into a better class in college. Everyone had a nicer set of parents. Every, I mean, I blamed everyone and everything for every single one of my itty bitty problems that most of which weren't even problems. And my solution, uh, once I knew what drugs and alcohol could do for me became using drugs and alcohol every day to try to recreate that feeling of the first year or two that I was using where I would come home from school, a nervous wreck, anxious about my homework and grades, scared about my relationship with my parents, uh, afraid that I wasn't going to get something I wanted or worse that I, something that I thought I needed, I wouldn't have, um, faithless, hopeless. And I would grab that beer out of the, you know, second fridge in the back kitchen, my parents' apartment and sneak it into my room. And I would go into my, you know, I'd shout to my mom, I'm going to do homework till I'm, you know, ready for dinner or whatever. And, you know, 
start pulling bong hits, you know, on the, you know, on the couch in my bedroom. Um, that feeling of disconnecting from the world and, and not experiencing the emotions and the feelings that I was having, that, that disconnection feeling to me was what I, I spent the next 13, no, sorry, 16 years chasing. And it didn't matter whether I was, uh, stealing purses off the backs of chairs, uh, and Madison Avenue, uh, you know, French restaurants, uh, to, take the credit cards and passports downtown and sell them to my old heroin dealers, you know, for the money that I'd use to buy, you know, whatever it was I was getting high on or drinking, uh, at the end when I was living in this abandoned building, uh, it didn't matter that I was begging a judge to like either throw me inside or kick me to the curb, but I can't get high standing here in front of you, your honor. I mean, just either way, I'm fine with it. Uh, inside or outside, just can't stand the courtroom. Um, to the line, to my friends and family, to the point where no one wanted to have anything to do with me. I mean, really, no one wanted to have anything to do with me. My parents thought I was dead. And then when I ended up sobering up and they found out I was alive, they didn't come to my intervention. And my dad said, when I contacted him for treatment, he said, call me when you're three years sober. I don't want to talk to you until then. I can't go through this again, where I invest everything into you and you end up, you know, fucking it up and and dropping the ball again. Um, I was, uh, I was an absolute mess and I knew it in my heart of hearts when I was nine, 10 years old. I remember, uh, going up to the little corner store in the uh, beach community that we, uh, spent summers in. And, uh, I stole some comic books and a bag with 50, uh, red and white uh, bobbers, you know, for fishing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people at the store, when my parents went up there later that night to grab whatever, you know, sponges, the owner of the store said, hey, your kid stole some stuff here today. You know, I was going to call you later. You know, I mean, he knew who I was, right? A uh, little family-run business. It was the corner store, you know? <laughs> And, you know, he had seen me in that round mirror up in the corner of the thing. I thought I was being really sly. And my parents confronted me that night and uh, I, you know, I'm crying and I'm, uh, I took these two comics and I took this thing. And they're like, what'd you do with your, you get an allowance for that stuff. And I'm like, I know I spend it on other stuff. Well, then you, you can't take something that isn't yours. Just I wanted it. Uh, and I remember like, there was my parents kind of looked at me funny and it, then it dawned on them like, and they asked me the question that I've never forgotten. I was eight and I hadn't used a drink or drug at all. And my, my dad looked at me and my mom, they, and they were about to say the same thing. And my dad ended up asking me like, okay, we know you like the comic books. You don't even really fish. And when you do, we go out with all of the tackle that I have in the garage what do you need with a bag of 50 bobbers? And my response to him was, was there were a lot of them. And the reason that, that stuck with me is that I didn't want the bag with five bobbers or 10 bobbers. I wanted the, the bag that was like a gallon Ziploc bag that had 50 in there. And the reason I've, I found out that, and now the reason that story sticks in my head is that when I ended up sobering up, 
somebody I heard uh, speak once said that they nicknamed their disease more. No matter what it was, coke, heroin, pills, booze, pot, girls, uh, driving fast, risky behavior of any kind, whatever it was that they that made them feel good, they just wanted more of it. Whatever they had was never enough. And that was exactly what it was. And I was like, that's why I stole 50 bobbers. 20 wasn't good enough. I didn't even have a use for 50. I didn't have a use for one bobber. We didn't do that kind of fishing. My dad loved to go uh, deep sea fishing or surf casting. Uh, we didn't need little crappy bass bobbers. You know, it, it, I mean, it, was, it was nuts. Uh, but I had a disease called more. So I knew it in my heart of hearts when I was in, you know, grade school, eight, nine, 10 years old, I knew it. I, I knew that I felt inadequate and I felt anxious. And I think probably worst of all, I guess, is that I felt like I couldn't tell that to anyone. And that's why when I'm, you know, I mean, I, I tweeted at least once a night because I get a lot of questions about this on my Twitter feed. I always say to people, just, you know, pick up the phone, call one person and tell them what's going on. You have to, it's the only way to start getting well is because we're only as sick as our secrets. You got to tell one of you got to start with one person and then it becomes really easy and transparent. There's some things that I did in my late 20s because I knew what New York nightclub life was like. And uh, so I would wait. This is when I was homeless and uh, I would roll drunks. So it's three in the morning and some like Wall Street guy, 50 years old, fat, really drunk, would come walking out of a nightclub. Right. And I would be in an alley either down the street or across the street. and I'd see them. And usually the drunk guy at three in the morning is like he's going to hail a cab. Right. I mean, this is this is going back 31, 32 years. Uh, so there's no Uber or anything like that. It's just yellow cabs and subways at three in the morning. And uh, the guy would walk out of the street. And I knew, because I used to be that guy, that you walked a block to kind of clear your head, right? Uh, let the cold air hit your face. You've just been in the club. You're more fucked up than you think you are. And you just need to walk. And I would have already cased. I knew in each of the clubs where the alley or where I could pull someone on the dark side of the the street and I would try to roll the drunk, which is literally what it sounds like. You know, if you, you have your wits about you and there's a very inebriated person, you just kind of like trip them up with your legs, put them down on the ground, yank a wallet out of their pants or, you know, strip a watch off their wrist. And then I could go downtown to Alphabet City uh, and hock their stuff. Um, you know, things like that to, to I used to be so ashamed about telling those stories that that's where my disease took me. Um, and I have no shame about that anymore. I, I have to talk about it because that's the person that was me. I mean, that wasn't like, you know, a version of me that, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. That's, that's me when I am in desperation mode, I will do anything. And so the key in my life is not to be reactive, not to be desperate, not to use drugs and alcohol, work on myself, try to be the kind of person uh, that that doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I it's easy to, to 
talk about that. At, you know, I spent the last year of uh, my my using, well, 11 months, living in an abandoned building on Sullivan Street in lower Manhattan uh, way before it was, you know, $20 million brownstones. Sandra Bullock lives on that block now. Um, and uh, I, I took uh, my uh, a good friend many, many years ago. She then became my first wife, uh, down to this play. And I said, here's where it was. I looked over and there was like three condos in the building. And on the bottom was an Agnes B boutique and the whole block had gentrified and, you know, very fancy address in New York now, but 30 years ago, it was a windswept part of the city. And we lived it, we squatted in an abandoned building with casements in the windows and, and, the wind coming through, we pirated electricity. And when I say we, the bottle gang that I've been drinking with at this shot and beer bar uh, up near, um, uh, up in the West 40s, uh, far west side, um, which was also another windswept, nasty place. Uh, but, you know, every couple of days, I just steal a bottle of Comet Cleanser at the local bodega and sprinkle it around the pile of clothes that I would pass out on every night because I didn't want the rats and the roaches to crawl over me when I passed out. That was like the most important thing that I thieved or bought every day uh, was that, that jar of Comet cleanser. Uh, And I thought that was okay. And I lived that way for 11 months, didn't shower, I mean, I was that dirty, skeevy, you know, I mean, when I sobered up, when I finally came out of that place, try and went into this hotel, tried to kill myself and drink myself to death. Um, it, it took them, I mean, days and they threw away all my, it took days to wash the stink out of me. I, they say I was on the hospital unit at Hazelden for a couple extra days uh, because they were worried that my detox would be so severe. They didn't want me to go into some kind of cardiac arrest or have a stroke. Uh, but uh, I don't believe that. I actually think they kept me there just because they couldn't. They, they had to just keep washing me until they got the stink out of my pores uh, from 11 months of living uh, on the street like an animal. And so what, you know, basically you're in New York at that time. You're, I mean, New York's all you know at that point, right? You're, yep. you're really, I mean- this sounds like rock bottom. And at some point you make your way to Minnesota to, I'm assuming seek therapy there. Well, I, to, to put a finer point on it, I lived in this abandoned building. I then spent five days at the San Pedro hotel. I broke into my godmother's house, stole some jewelry, went to the San Pedro hotel, got some uh, shitty dollar a bottle vodka and just drank bottle after bottle after bottle for four and four or five days, never slept. I just passed out and I was trying to give myself alcohol poisoning. I just figured my body, my liver is done. I'm shot. I'm just going to, I'm just going to die here. And I was totally okay with that. I wanted that, um, too scared, uh, to do it any other way. And, uh, which wound up being a good thing because I woke up one morning there and I, I did the thing that I had never done my entire life, which I called a friend and asked for help. Uh, they tried to drive me out of their house. That didn't go too well. And 48 hours later, I walked into uh, the an intervention and then I was put on a plane and flew to Minnesota and 
started my sobriety the next morning at what is now Hazelden Betty Ford, but back then was just called Hazelden. And uh, I've been sober ever since. So who was at that intervention and how much of it do you actually remember clearly? Oh, I remember quite a, I, I, it's funny, uh, really insane alcoholism. There were some days I could drink two bottles of booze and talk to you like I'm talking to you right now. And then there'd be other days where I'd have three or four drinks and just be slurring my words and stumbling. Uh, it's the same thing with memory. I, I joke with my friends. I literally don't remember the 80s. It's like a missing decade for me, even though I did a lot of things, accomplished a lot of stuff in the restaurant industry at an early age, uh, worked in some incredible places, put out a lot of beautiful food and did a lot of things I'm really proud of in my life. Uh, but I don't remember a lot of it because I was I was blackout drinking and drugging. I was an active heroin addict, cocaine addict, pill addict, pot smoker, you know, boozer, you know, for the whole decade. Uh, but the, um, the, the, the crazy part, uh, for me is that once I woke up in center city and, uh, I had recollections, whole years are missing, but I remember the intervention. I, I was there to have a cup. I promised my friends and they had sort of said to me, we'll give you some money, so that you can get it. They, they were lying to me. They, they, these were the ones that were saying my intervention, you know, we'll, we'll do this. You know, they promised me something, go have a cup of coffee with our friend Pamela. And I knew that Pamela had gone to treatment like the year or two beforehand and had gotten sober. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. I'll listen to whatever she has to say, even though I know what it is, I'm not going to do it. I was already conning and trying to get my way back on the street. Um, and uh, I walked into this restaurant to meet her for a cup of coffee. And there were, 20 of my closest friends, oldest friends, uh, just sitting around in a circle. And I knew an intervention when I saw one. Uh, and the, everybody went around the room. Uh, they gave me, it said their piece to me and they gave me a one-way ticket, uh, a pack of smokes and 20 bucks and said, there's a car that's going to take you to the airport. Um, you're going to go to Hazelden. And, you know, my three of my oldest and closest friends took me out to the airport um, and uh, they literally waited until the plane was uh, boarding and I boarded the plane and got on and uh, short story, the rest is history. And so when you got to Minnesota, I'm... Assuming this story isn't just like you got to Minnesota, you walked into th into recovery or therapy and, <laughs> you know, the rest is ancient history. And now we have ourselves a celebrity chef on our hands. Um, you know, this industry and the reason why I'm interested in this conversation, and I probably should have prefaced this is this industry is not kind to addicts. It, it no. is a great place to be if you want to be an addict. And it's a great it's place fantastic. to hide. I mean, we, we hide out. I mean, you know, the, the stressors, people always talk about the stress of kitchen life. And that's why we have a, a greater percentage of addicts and alcoholics and people with other isms uh, populating restaurants. Uh, that's actually not why. It, we seek out certain industries because it's an easier place to hide. I will also tell you that while the greatest human beings in the world are in the food businesses, um, 
the smartest, coolest, most phenomenal human beings are recovering addicts and alcoholics. I mean, they're just, it's just an amazing group of the coolest fucking people ever. Uh, and, you know, so I wanted to be with those people when I was using, and a lot of them were in restaurants and it was a great place to hide and the hours were conducive to it. And I didn't mind beating myself up because I felt I deserved to be beaten up. So, you know, to be in a French brigade kitchen or an old school Italian kitchen, you know, where the, you know, the chef is, you know, actually throwing plates at you and stuff like that. Uh, that was okay with me. Uh, you know, the whole yes, chef, yes, chef thing was fine with me. Uh, I worked in kitchens in Paris. I worked in three-star Michelin kitchens in Paris, uh, in the early eighties. Um, so I was, you know, I was all about that and it perfectly suited my, you know, masochistic, uh, you know, uh, desires at that time. I knew I was, a. a, a an awful human being. So yeah, punish me. I deserve it. And I'll do whatever you say. And that's how you groom. You take young masochists and groom them to be sadists. You know, I mean, it's just, it's an awful vicious cycle. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of craziness there, but yes, it is not a straight line. It wasn't all a bed of roses. Um, although I will say um, the saving grace for me was that, I actually was surrendered uh, five, six days into treatment. Uh, not everybody is blessed with that experience. Um, some people are compliant and they eventually get there. Um, but five days in, I looked on a wall where I had mapped out my life in a counselor's office and just burst into tears. And I literally said, I will do anything not to go back to that. And when I heard everyone, all the speakers every night in the Bigelow Auditorium, all the books I read, everything that I was saying had told, there was one common thread through everything I was exposed to my first 30, 45 days of sobriety, uh, which was spent in the Hazelden continuum of care. Uh, everything said, don't drink, go to meetings, work the steps, do what people tell you. And I was just like, all right, that's simple. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to go to meetings. I'm going to work the steps, whatever the fuck those are. And I'm going to, I'm going to do what people tell me. Um, and that's, that's what I did. And to, and it, it, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back to a large extent. That's what I still do. Um, because when I don't do those things, um, I have, I have a spirit spiritual relapse um the, the, the you sober up you know first uh physically by you know admitting there's a problem and putting a cork in the bottle and then you then you sober up mentally you know by you know acknowledging that you you have a mental health issue and you need help from some resource bigger than yourself that left to your own devices you've just been a drunk and uh, they call that a higher power. You can name it, you can be whatever you want. You can call it the, the, the lipstick in your wife's cabinet. But, you know, you have to have something you believe in that's bigger than you. And, uh, and, and then the, the, the next phase in recovery, that third piece, um, is turning your will in your life over to that thing you have faith in, that thing that's bigger than you. 
So you you come in one, two, three, you you relapse three, two, one backwards. You let go of the spiritual side, uh, the spiritual life that you're building, and you no longer have faith that your things are going to work. And then the stinking thinking comes back, like the voice in your head that has always said, you know, a drink doesn't sound so bad right now, except this time you listen to it. And then you wind up, you know, relapsing physically by picking up that that next drink or drug. So you come in one, two, three, you slide out three, two, one. I have, I, I mean, you can pry my seat, you know, that's in my hands, my ticket to that 12 step group, you know, and you can pry it from my hands when I'm cold and dead. I mean, I will, I will fight you for it. There is nothing more valuable to me in the world uh, than my recovery. Without it, I cannot be uh, a friend, a citizen, a father, um, you know, a boss, an employee. I cannot be anything uh, because I'm a real alcoholic. And I am, you know, they say some are sicker than others. I'm, I'm bad and I got a bad disease and I just got to take my medicine all the time. And that's, you know, here I am, uh, you know, lo and behold, I'm just looking on my, I have a little uh, prayer meditation book on my phone and that little book has a date. We're talking to, I have 10,551 days. Um, so it's been working for me for, 10,551 days, one day at a time. And I'm just going to keep doing it again. Uh, God willing tomorrow. I know I'm not going to drink today. Tomorrow's another day. Yeah. And so skipping ahead a little bit, you, you have children now, right? Yes. One. And how do you, how do you talk to him about this thing in your life? He's, that known, is so he's known about it. He's known about it since day one. You know, there's there's a there's a great saying. I'm also an adoptive parent. My son is adopted. Um, when I was in the adoption process, uh, we were at one of these parent seminars where you ask questions of other parents who come in who've been through the process ahead of you because you have so many questions. And the biggest question that everyone has right away is, when do you tell your kid, you know, son, you're adopted? And the first parent to answer the question is, is you, you, you tell them every night, every day, you tell them three times a day, starting the first day that you, they're living under your roof. And someone said, well, we're, we're getting an infant from Ethiopia or whatever. And someone else was like, we're, we're getting a domestic adoption of, they're going to be nine or 10 months by the, and the parents say, it doesn't matter. You tell them the story every day, several times, so that when they're 25 and someone says to them, when did your parents tell you you were adopted? You're, they're like, I don't know. I've always known. Yeah. And it's the, it's the same thing with everything that I parent is built around a handful of principles that uh, I've learned in other places that taught me more about parenting than anything else. So, you know, we talked to Noah about drugs and alcohol. We, he, he's known my story forever. Um, 
And he's going to have to make – all you can do as a parent is give them all the information. I'm not going to go to college with him. I'm not going to go to high school uh, with him. Well, he's two years in. Uh, you know, I don't go with him everywhere. So you have to tell them everything. And hopefully they respect you enough where they're like, oh, you know, I kind of trust my old man. I know at some point uh, he's going to be uh, curious about it and he'll have his first, you know – puff a joint his first you know beer and his first whatever um from my own experience i i certainly uh i am very 420 friendly um i don't smoke pot myself i can't because if i pick up any kind of drug it just brings me right back to the same place i lost that privilege the power of choice i no longer have choice i i don't trust myself um but I have lots of friends that smoke weed and I've been around it my whole life. And I've talked to every law. I do a lot of work with law enforcement, especially here in the twin cities. And, uh, we have, uh, an ex police chief in St. Paul, uh, who came up as a beat cop first police chief in St. Paul that made it all the way from beat cop to police chief. And I had the chance to be dining with him one night and, uh, he was telling me war stories and I just loved hearing him talk about this stuff. And I asked him because I was so curious. He knew I was sober a long time. And I said, uh, booze or pot, which one is worse? And he just laughed. He said, any cop will tell you booze is, you know, booze and hard drugs, you know? And I, I'm like, explain that to me. I said, as someone who's used them both, I, I think I know where you're going with this. But the gist of what he was saying was, you know, he, he said, you know, in 30 years, you know, out squad cars and everything from, you know, patrolman all the way up to lieutenant, uh, I never walked in on a crime scene and had someone turn to me and say, you know, sergeant, lieutenant, whatever rank I was. There were a couple of guys here pulling bong hits on the couch, watching old cartoons late at night. And then dot, dot, dot. Ever. <laughs> yeah, ever. Ever. He, and he said to me, his words, he said, guys that smoke a bunch of pot at night, thing like, you know, they call Pizza Hut and eat ice cream. Happy, horny, and hungry. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it's like, you know, it, it, that is the extent of it. Um, he said, you put booze in the mix or crack or, do, you know, heroin or any of that stuff in there. Those are the domestics where there's, vi and, he, and he said, by the way, the flip side of that, he says, I've never been to a domestic where hard drugs and alcohol didn't play a role. Sometimes big, sometimes small, but always played a role. And on and on, all those traffic, you know, pullovers, all that stuff. He said, you know, it's he says the stats. He said, talk to any state patrolman. They either one out of a thousand people die in a car crash wearing their seatbelt, you know. He says it's staggering, the statistics. Right. He says everybody we pull from a car that's dead isn't wearing their seatbelt. It's like it's simple. It, it, I mean, it's we just as Americans, we don't want to play by the rules. I mean, we're dealing with that with COVID right now. We're dealing with that with our restaurant industry right now to bring it back to that original topic. People don't want to wear masks. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, South Korea, everyone was like, oh, there's a disease. There's a virus. Everyone put on your mask. And three months later, it's down and. 580 people died or whatever it was. And, you know, their economy's back open and then, you know, everybody is, you know, walking around, uh, you know, enjoying some, uh, tukboki. I mean, yeah. it's, you well, know. it seems that places like Korea or Japan, um, even, you know, New Zealand, Sweden, uh, 
the social contract feels like it's one that seems very similar for the majority of the population, if not the entire population. They understand that there is an obligation to the greater good. Right. The United States is in this in this mad dash over the last 80 years. We've developed this convenience culture that's killing us. We've developed a, a food culture that in many ways and a food system that's killing us. We are okay with uh, haves and have nots. We have become okay with so many things in 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 our society that to me are not okay. And the reason that we have pursued them is that everyone thinks that's their route to the gold ring. And I'd rather live in a society, and I'm not a socialist, I would rather live in a society where everyone has a brass ring, you know? If some people get a gold one, great, but I just don't like the idea of gold rings being around. It makes people power crazy. Was it Churchill that said that every American he had ever met was a temporarily embarrassed millionaire? Yes. You know, and and it's it's funny because you you, you you hit the nail on the head with with the sense that you know no matter who you are in America, you always have that vision that you could be the next millionaire. Well, it's part of our promise, right? Right. I mean, the the great promise of this democracy and our capitalist society is that you know the person who's the PA on my set today is the guy that invests you know he, you know his money in Bitcoin or writes a script that you know, Tom Cruise buys or whatever. I mean, it's like those are the stories we love in America, right? I mean, and and in a sense, that's kind of my story. You know, I mean, you know, I was, uh, you know, a chef in a restaurant and, you know, making, you know, $45,000 a year and had, you know, half the restaurant was mine and like phantom sea stock from a, you know, skeevy partner. Uh, And we had the best restaurant in town at that point. I mean, you know, it was, you know, not even close. We had the, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say the crew we put together because here's the great thing. Every, once I became the chef in this restaurant, it only took me like two or three years to realize through friends of friends of friends that lots of really talented cooks and bakers and, you know, everyone was coming through treatment centers in Minnesota. And so I just put the word out on the street that we had a no booze, ki- sober kitchen and all the rest of this kind of thing. And within two years, I turned it all around and we had some of the best cooks in a, I mean, like some only stayed for 90 or 120 days. Others stayed with me for a couple of years uh, before going back to their old cities. Um, uh, but, you know, some, some very well-known people uh, came through, uh, the the kitchen at the French restaurant that I was uh, the chef and partner in when we opened up. But after seven years, I I went to my sponsor and I said, my insides aren't matching my outsides. And he said, what do you mean? And he, I said, I'm, I'm able to practice the principles, the spiritual principles that are keeping me sane everywhere, but at work, I'm, I'm too competitive. I'm too crazy. I want a bigger platform. I need to tell stories. I, I, I just, this isn't enough. And I'm, I'm going crazy in this tiny windowless box. Uh, we're, we're crushing it. I said, but I don't like my partner. I know that's going to go South, you know, fast. And my sponsor said, quit. I said, I can't afford to. And he said, well, go find a couple of jobs and then quit. And uh, I took a part-time job. Well, actually, an internship. I got. I didn't get paid. It, those are the days where they didn't pay for internships. I got a uh, a job for uh, no money, uh, ninety-day job at a local TV station, a local radio station, and a local magazine. 
because I wanted to learn. I didn't know which one of the media side of things I wanted to go into, radio, writing, or TV. And I ended up uh, making myself somewhat indispensable at all three places. And for four or five years, I worked at all three jobs. Uh, my my internship turned into a weekend radio show, one hour, that eventually by the time I gave it up, I was doing drive time with a show called Afternoon Delight every afternoon. Afternoon Delight with Andrew Zimmern and Colleen Cruz. Um, the TV gig went from uh, helping editors bin tapes uh, to being uh, the uh, food features reporter for the uh, local Fox O&O here in town. Uh, which allowed me to then collect tape and do stories and kind of hone my craft a little bit uh, and uh, put tape out and try to get a job in TV. Although when I look at, we, we put up a lot of that behind the scenes tape on my YouTube channel and people, I mean, it is, it's some really bad stuff. I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> shocked that I got a job at travel channel when I did. Um, and then uh, the magazine was fantastic uh, because I, I got blessed to have a great editor. Uh, and just like any chef needs a great partner in the front of the house, someone to tell him you need to take two ingredients off that plate or the dish you think is so great, nobody is ordering for a reason, change it, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you need a good editor. And I, I learned in high school how to read, write, and think critically. And I kind of blew off that stuff in college. And I learned how to do it again from a great editor at Minneapolis St. Paul magazine named Adam Platt. And I ended up winning some awards for my writing and I ended up winning some local awards for TV and got into some national stuff. And one thing led to the other. And I, you know, I had been trying to push this idea around for three years. Uh, and uh, that finally became what was bizarre foods. And, you know, First episode did okay. The second episode did eh, a teeny bit better. Uh, then the third episode uh, was the one where the shaman in Ecuador spat up on me, beat me with guinea pigs until they died, beat me with leaves uh, that caused me to break out in hives. I was naked, by the way. I, rem the I remember this episode. It was great. And he spat, <laughs> then he spat homemade hooch all over me and lit me on fire and the, all the hair in my chest. I'm a hairy guy. All went up. I mean, it was, it was unreal what, what that was like. What a great episode. I forgot and about that. It, it really was. Well, here was the crazy thing. That episode, the next day the ratings came out and they were like two tenths of a point lower than the week before. And everyone at the production company knew what that meant, that unless episode four pulled a huge number, they were not going to renew the show. I mean, it's it's all a numbers game in TV, and uh, at least back then. And uh, the phone rang, uh, and that the show premiered on a episode three was on a, we had a Tuesday night. Uh, I, I was, they put my show right before Bourdain's show and, uh, and he had just been doing, uh, uh, no reservations. Uh, sorry, it was it had been Cook's, Cook's tour, tour the year beforehand, and it was the first year of no reservations. Right. But it was double stacked. It was bizarre foods and no reservations. And um, that was a that was a great two hours of TV. That was a well, 
it was a good two hours of TV. The next year, it turned into a great two right. hours of TV. Right. Uh, then for many years, uh, well, then they split us apart. Tony went to stayed on Tuesday. I went to Monday and they started to broaden their, their reach. But that second year when we were together, but both were doing, knew what we were doing, it was good. But the, anyway, the third episode, uh, it was a woman named Jolie, who was the chief booker for the tonight show back when the tonight show made you or broke you, uh, called me and said, uh, we just, someone just showed me the tape. Uh, how quickly can you be in Los Angeles? And this is Wednesday afternoon. I said, I can be there tomorrow. They're like, great. You're going to be on the tonight show tomorrow night. So that Thursday night I go on the tonight show. Um, I was lucky enough to do well, Jay, just like the thing with the comics. He's like, Oh my God, we got to have you back. This is so much fun. Um, and <laughs> I, that's I ended incredible. up going on, I ended up going to the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, I don't know, four or five times the first two years. But the the needless to say, you go on the Tonight Show that Thursday. Now, you're on a little, by the way, Travel Channel 15, 16 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, it was nothing. It was a nothing network back then. Tony nothing. hadn't exploded and every other show was called World's Best Bathrooms. The second show that they, oh, uh, and Samantha Brown was on there and me, I was the third one hired. Uh, and I, and I was always surprised, by the way, that anyone would ever bring it up to me because I'm a cook and I would watch those shows religiously. They were my two favorite shows on TV and I would watch them religiously. And anytime anyone ever brought it up, like, hey, do you know Bizarre Foods or hey, do you know No Reservations? I'd be like, how do you how did you know? Like, I yeah, thought that exactly. was like the most cult thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Tonight Show made it because the 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 next week the show took off. It was a huge hit. Uh, I was pulling a big number. They had tried five or six shows in front of Cook's tour uh, the year before. Nothing carried over or gave Tony's show extra viewers, and that's the magic of TV. You want to build a night and then deconstruct it where those shows then go to their own night. And then you just keep repeating that. And that's how you build a network. And Pat Young, the old GM of travel channel understood that better than anyone. Uh, he's a legendary TV guys back in England now um, running his own business production company. Uh, but he, he really understood uh, what it meant uh, to build an, an audience like that. But the, the dumb luck of, because here's the the backstory that nobody knows. Um, we shot that scene where the shaman almost kills me. Uh, he's trying to exorcise me, but he almost killed me. <laughs> and we shot that during lunch break. Uh, everybody's wandering around. You can imagine all morning long, I'm eating, right? I'm eating lamb dung and roasted, you know, the dried octopus, whatever the whatever it was that I was eating that day. Uh, but I'm full, right? So then everyone goes to lunch and I usually wandered around the little town and I'm in Otavalo, Ecuador, uh, which is in the hills of the highlands of central Ecuador and uh, famous for its biggest, big open air market. And we're going to shoot that. We are going to shoot that market the next day. Uh, and we were, we were going to do some B roll after lunch or something like that around the town. And I saw this sign and my, my translator said to me, I didn't know what the sign said. And he says, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, um, 
an old Incan language, a dead language. He says, but it means witch doctor. And I'm like, witch doctor? And he says, yeah, do you want to see if he's in? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> and so my translator knocked and he's in. And, you know, the guy is, what do you want? The guy, what do you want? And I'm like, I don't know. what. It, and I said, ask him, what, what does a witch doctor do? What's on the menu? And he says, he, he says, there's exorcisms. There's the $4 exorcism and the $8 exorcism. And I asked my translator, I said, what's the difference? And the guy looked at me and he says, he says, do you have car washes in America? And I said, yeah. He goes, there's the $8 car wash and the $4 car wash. Which one do you want? I said, the $8 car wash. And he said, fine. And the next thing I knew, I'm doing this exorcism. So I see the crew on the street and they want to get me to do something. I said to our field producer, I said, get Mike, our camera guy. I said, let's shoot this. I, mean, I said, we, we're just doing B-roll. I'm going to get an exorcism. And it takes like two hours and She's like, we can't do that. We don't have time. Mike came around. It was a three-person crew. Me, a cameraman, and his producer-director girlfriend. The, the, the producer-director girlfriend, Shannon, she and I would write the show at night in the hotel room. Mike would do sound. He'd set up a camera on a tripod so he had a master wide shot. And then we'd shoot everything twice with his like crappy Z1U camera. And the three of us made the first... 12 episodes of Bizarre Foods that way um, until the second season got bought. And all of a sudden we had a big crew. And then by the end, it's, you know, 18 people and, you know, a whole crazy universe. Uh, but we shot that as a lark. And three minutes into it, we knew it was gold. I mean, who wouldn't want to watch someone get exercised and have him do these horrible things to me? And then he <laughs> burned them all in the middle of the branches, the eggs he broke on me, the spit, Everything got piled into the dead guinea pigs uh, that died because he was holding them by the legs, beating them against my chest until they died. Um, it, it all absorbs the bad demons. And then he burns them and then he takes the ashes down to the river behind the town and washes them away. And people always say to me, well, did, did it work? And I'm like, I had the best year of my life after that. Of course it worked. And I've often thought, daydreamed about going back down and seeing that dude. Wow. I, you know, the thing is, I was about to ask you in jest, like, did you feel like he was just fucking with you? And then I, I was like, my better judgment was like, no, don't ask that. It's like, it's culturally insensitive. And then you got to the end of your story. And all of a sudden I felt foolish for thinking like that he would be fucking with you because no matter what you believe, that's some really fucking powerful stuff. Like it's, just the idea that yeah. this dude is taking all of this energy from you yep, and he's washing it away, yep. you know, he's burning it and washing it away. And just, what if that was just like, what if that was beyond anything he was doing? What if that signaled in your own brain? Exactly. Well, that's the, that is the, you hit the nail on the head because I was going to say it's like recovery. I do all this stuff. And if someone told me tomorrow it was a giant con, I'd still do it because it well, works for working. me, you know, and you know, maybe that guy just motivated me to just work a little harder that I don't know what it was. Uh, or maybe it was just as simple as it was kind of a big nothing, but he got me on the tonight show, that old Yakshi medicine man, uh, got me on the tonight show. Um, and the rest was history. It became, you know, the show ran for, you know, 12 and a half, 13 years, uh, until the day that travel channel called me, I was on the set actually making an episode of Zimmern list 
uh, the show that we won an Emmy for this year. Congratulations. And the network called me and said, we're changing Travel Channel. Uh, and I said, what do you mean you're changing Travel Channel? And they're like, we're changing it from a food and travel uh, network to a ghost and paranormal network. And uh, we're asking you to shut down production completely. And we're going to buy out your contract. And you got to sit on the sideline for the next year. And, you know, that was that was it. That was a harsh call. I always thought having a successful show that I would know kind of like the Sopranos, right? I mean, you know, not that we're in that level, but you know, they, they would tell you, okay, we're not going to renew it for season 13 or 14 or whatever it was. Uh, and we'd be like, okay, so I could plan out what my last show was. We always joked in my last show, I would eat my own hand. Um, <laughs> and it didn't, it ended just right then and there. I mean, we never knew, uh, but, but life, life throws you some really solid, solid stuff sometimes. So we suspended production on Zimmerlist and there was, they suspended production on D delicious destinations and they had lots of episodes of each in the can to roll out the following year. But we had already closed shooting bizarre foods four or five months before that. And, uh, the last episode that we shot, they ended up airing them in the order we shot them because they had to because of our delivery. And the very last episode to air of Bizarre Foods, and I, I still think it carries the, the largest episode number, um, was the uh, um, uh, Freedom Railroad show uh, where we, we traced the roots of... Uh, enslaved Africans um, as they tried to make their way from the Southern States up through uh, and across the Ohio river into, uh, you know, what is uh, now Cincinnati. Um, and we, we met with people who were recreating the, uh, the, the foods of the middle of the 19th century as a way to preserve that period uh, in African-American history um, because it was so important to black culture of our time that we do that. Um, and it was like the fourth show that Michael Twitty was in. Uh, and for people who haven't read The Cooking Gene, it's, it's mandatory reading for anyone interested in food and culture. Uh, the... Uh, I'm so proud that the very last show that we ever did was the Underground Railroad show because it it brought the show you know from the guy a guy that started out eating you know fat white guy goes around the world and eats bugs to having that incredible opportunity to tell that story uh, you know as a food travel culture maker. Uh, I was so happy that I didn't get to make an episode where I ate my own hand. My last episode was, was the underground railroad show. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's such a meaningful thing to be able to, uh, be able to share, um, you know, and, and it's, it's strange how much of that history Americans, um, you know, refuse to kind of confront or talk about or, show and, and, you know, a lot of times it, um, you know, it gets swept under the rug. So you, okay. So we've kind of covered a lot of seasons of your life 
And, you know, you went from really, I mean, probably an, the most destructive lifestyle one could have and, and headed for, you know, death. And you, by, you know, the grace of a lot of amazing people in your life and through some luck and through your own will and determination to be sober for your family and friends. And you built yourself an incredibly blessed life. And I think when people see you on TV because of your natural jovial demeanor and your kind of always positive mentality, and I think it would be easy to assume that you don't have very many bad days. Um, what are your bad days like? Ooh, the bad days are bad. Um, but by the, by the same token, um, I wouldn't trade my worst day to day, uh, for my best day before I sobered up. And that's the truth. Um, I have, life is fired at point blank range. Kids get sick, parents die, uh, you get fired. You know, your best friend tells you, go fuck yourself, and he means it. Um, the thing you've been working on for years fails. You know, the marriages, divorces, births, birthdays, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's life. I mean, it just happens. And the big bad things tend to happen fast. They sometimes have a big, long, you know, ramp to them, but it's, you know, it's volcanic. It's like a shotgun. It's fired at point blank range. And we don't have a lot of choice. We can't move out of the way. So I am so lucky that I have been given, you know, I used to get tossed the life jacket and I threw it back at the person in the boat because I didn't like the color orange. I now have like 10 life jackets I carry around with me. So when calamity hits, when the, when the shit hits the fan, whether I'm responsible for creating that shit storm or someone else is, I have tools that I can use to match that calamity with some semblance of serenity. And it's because I have spent 10,551 days uh, practicing that shit. Um, it's like shooting free throws. I got no from a from a from a positive self-talk standpoint, uh, I am I am I am not afraid of uh, very much happening in my life that I don't think I could handle. It would have to be something made up that I hadn't contemplated yet. And I, I, I said that once to someone and they said, what about the death of a child? And I said, well, we, I came really close once and, and I've been, I've had that near death thing and I've had tragic events in my life very close to that. And I said, I still, I, I said, I, I, you know, I'm not going to be pretentious enough and, you know, it, it, you know, 
man jests and God laughs. Right. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, go down that road, but I would like to think because I've seen other men before me in sobriety. I, I, I do men's groups and stuff. I, I know there's lots of sober women. I just, you know, I, I, everyone I believe should sober up in their own life raft, uh, by gender, um, romance and finance are the two things that derail. I've seen more people get derailed that way. So I, I go to a single sex meeting, men's meetings. Um, the, I, I think I'm at this point in my sobriety, I am, I for sure have been taught the tools to get through it. Cause I've watched other people do it before me. I've seen other men that I've sobered up with lose, lose a child, which to me is the worst thing that could happen to me. I don't think, I don't think there's, I can't contemplate a worse thing. There's, cause there's nothing I love more in the world than my son. Um, I don't think he's going anywhere. I mean, certainly he's not done fucking me with me yet just to spite me. I mean, I get the feeling he's going to be around forever, at least for my whole life. Um, but I think I at least know I've been given the tools, whether I choose to use them or not is a different story. And oftentimes for a lot of people, they reach back for the old tool to make themselves feel good when they're having real pain. Uh, and those that's their drugs and alcohol. But I, I, I really feel like I've been shown the example by some amazing men in my life that it does not matter, uh, what your circumstances are, you can still say, stay sober. Uh, I knew a guy I used to take meetings to a prison, uh, not a jail, a prison here in Minnesota, uh, as part of my service work. And, uh, I, I met this guy, uh, who was in jail for murder. Uh, I ended up sponsoring him for a couple of years. Then he got transferred to a, a lower security prison and, uh, far corner of the state. And, I wasn't doing service work there and he needed to get a sponsor. He would have some kind of contact with and stuff. We still keep up. Uh, we exchange letters a couple times a year, an incredible man. Um, to have done some of the things that he did when he was running with a gang in Chicago um, and then to make amends, I mean, to really work this program while in prison, while in you know, the type of confinement that he was in um, and to still work as as an amazing recovery program and to be separated from his kids, one of whom was shot uh, a victim of gang violence. Um, and to hear him talk to me about it, uh, one of the most inspirational relationships I've ever had in my life. So I, I, I think I'm sort of, I think I'm pre prepared for whatever. Um, but we'll see, time will tell, you know, I got, I, I, you know, I got a lot of living to do. So I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, happy things and tragedies that'll come with it. We'll see. What are you the most looking forward to? Oh gosh. Getting up tomorrow morning. I, I am, I, I think I told you, I, I don't forget the eighties, uh, or I don't remember the eighties. Uh, I, I just, I can't wait to, you know, I'm going to go home. I'm going to have some dinner. I'm going to watch with football. I'm going to talk to my kid, uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm going to go to work. Um, 
I get another day to be with some amazing people, do some really cool things. We, you know, hopefully we have some good news uh, for this, uh, you know, uh, restaurant uh, relief act relief grant that I'm hoping will be part of, uh, you know, whatever this next stimulus package is going to be. Maybe we'll know tonight. Um, but I, you know, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to try to, you know, be with my teams and get some stuff done and, uh, you know, play some Frisbee golf this weekend, hang out with my kid, do some Christmas shopping, which is a super Jewy thing to do tonight. I lit the eight candles, the eighth candle for, uh, our final night of Hanukkah, which, you know, we've been celebrating here in the office because once the sun goes down, light them here, and then I do them again when I go home. Uh, it's been very meaningful for me this year because the the lessons that we we talk about in with the the story of Hanukkah, the the lamp that only had enough oil for one night that lasted eight of what it means to have faith and patience and uh, invest in the loss and the miracle of the oil uh, resonates with me so much. Um, but I just get such a kick out of just getting up each get each day and going to do the cool things. You know, I came up with another good idea today and I can't wait to put that into action tomorrow and we'll see if it goes anywhere. Right. Most of them fizzle and fail, but the really fun thing are the, is the one or two ideas every year that we come up with around here that uh, wind up being really cool. Uh, whether it's on the TV, uh, the production company I own or on the hospitality company side or with the marketing group side uh, that make up our three trio of businesses here in our office. Um, it's just great. I work with really amazing, inspirational people and we get to do some cool things. So I'm, I'm super blessed. Well, my friend on the eighth day of Hanukkah, um, you know, I mean, I don't think there could be a more meaningful holiday for us to be going through right now. Cause it's funny. My daughter is, uh, going to be two next month. And this is the first, uh, year of her life that she's recognizing what the, you know, the menorah and what's happening. And I'm making an extra to do about it, you know, and just, I really want her to notice it because, you know, when I was a kid, this holiday for me was honestly, the only thing it represented was togetherness. It represented this moment in my life that I remember being incredibly happy. And, you know, it would be me and my brother and my cousin, and we'd be sitting and, and we'd be fighting over like Ninja Turtle figurines and wh who, who got which one to complete their, you know, group or whatever. But it was this moment that I felt like my family was truly com complete. And I think that Hanukkah stops having significance for a lot of people after you're a child and before you have a child, um, because it's a, traditionally it's a holiday for children. You know, it's not one of the high holidays. And this year, I think it's had more significance for me than ever. And partly because of my daughter and partly because of what it means and the idea of resilience and fight and the idea that you have it within you to overcome challenge. You have it within you to overcome any obstacle. And, you know, whether that's 
addiction, whether that's business, whether that's socially, whatever it ends up being, you know, everything you need in life is already inside of you. And so I, you know, I can't wait to get home tonight and light that last candle with my daughter. And I wish you the same thing. So on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much, Andrew, for being on the main ingredient. And, you know, it's an honor to know you, my friend. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate that. I just, uh, circumstances put me in a good, uh, spot these, uh, these last 29 years, every, every day is a new beginning. And I, it's, you know, I'm, I'm living on extra in extra innings here. So it's, it's, it's a real gift. Thank you for asking me. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be exchanging, uh, toasts over emails tomorrow. I hope so. Mazel tov, my friend. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Thank you. The main ingredient. Main ingredient.